mistakes, blunders, flaws, gaffes, slip-ups, whatever you want to call them, you and I make a ton of them throughout our lifetime. The good thing about mistakes is that uh, we have the ability to be able to learn from them. Uh, Sometimes the consequences of the mistakes we make are so bad that we set our minds and we set our hearts to make sure that we never commit them again. This is what happened to me when I was just a young teenager, even a young boy. Um, I remember in the fifth grade talking with my buddy Daryl Mayo um, on the phone, and uh, I was in my parents' room. And so some of you might be asking, why would you be talking to your best friend in your parents' room? Well, the reason for that is because the telephones way back then had cords on them that were attached to places, so you couldn't just go wherever you wanted. This is true, young people. Google it. You'll see that uh, phones actually existed this way. And I was sitting at my, uh, on my parents' bed, and next to it was a little desk and a little lamp. And, and for whatever reason, I was talking this, on this, this side with the receiver, and, and I was flipping the switch back and forth with my left hand. Now, important to understand, there was no bulb in this lamp, and there was no lampshade. And so I was just flipping it back and forth, and somehow, someway, this finger found its way down in the light socket, and so when I turned it on, it lit me up. Now, so you understand culturally that word lit means different things at different times. It didn't mean that I got drunk, and it didn't mean it was a great experience. It it meant that I almost electrocuted myself, and so that's what it means. And a couple couple years later, as a young teenager, somebody gave me um, an illegal bag of fireworks from Uh, from South Carolina. You guys know what that means. I think they might even sell them around here, but somehow they're illegal. I don't know how that works. Uh, You can buy them here. You can't shoot them off here. But I did what any good Christian young man would do. I snuck them out to the woods and shot them all off. Uh, But what I did was uh, one of the fireworks was like this huge, it had a huge tube on it, huge base on it, big old kind of like wick that it was attached to it. And I shot everything else off and I thought this this baby's going to be big. And so I laid it down, I lit it, burned all the way down and, and nothing. So my, naturally, my, my natural curiosity was to look down the tube to see, um, I didn't say I was the smartest guy, and so uh, I, looked, I started moving this way, and all of a sudden a large ball of fire shot up, burning and singeing all my hair on this left side. Now, some of you who are wicked and have guile of heart are thinking, so that's what happened to Pastor Mike's hair. No, genetics happened to Mike's hair. That's, that's, I think, I feel like Dan's laughing. Why is he was Dan? Anyway, so I hear, and so that's what ended up happening, but that's not the point. The point is, I learned from those two things. Never again as an adult have I ever stuck my finger in a, in a light socket. Never again have I looked down the tube of a firework, of a lit firework. I've never done any of those things before, and I'm sure that you probably have stories where you even say, hey, man, I did that. Never going to do that again. The truth is we all make mistakes, we can learn from them, but the truth is that there are some mistakes so terrible, so horrible, that you and I simply cannot afford to make even once. Unfortunately, many times they're very common mistakes, can't afford to make them, but yet we do. And this is the truth of the text that we're looking at this morning. There's a man by the name of Abner who was a commander of Saul's army. At this particular point, Saul has died, and now he's basically the commander of the same army, but now Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is now king. So he's still the same commander of the same army. And here within this text, he actually makes two really terrible mistakes, mistakes that neither he nor we can afford to make. 
Now, what I want to do is, is today is the Lord's Supper. You guys see that down here, and, and um, I know everybody's always excited because you're like, maybe the message will be shorter, and, uh, and I always promise it will be shorter, and it, we know it never is. Um, but the point of the Lord's Supper and the point of this message is I want to use it as a tool for you and I to prepare our hearts. I want us to make sure that we look into our hearts and allow God to be able to look in and to be able to prepare us so that we take the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy of the blood and of the body of Jesus Christ. And so what are these two mistakes that we, that we cannot afford to make, but we often do? First of all, number one, is the first mistake is to know the truth without adhering to it. To know the truth without adhering to it. That is to know the truth, but not to do anything with it, not to obey it. Now, look at, if you will, in verse 12, say, where do we see this in the text? Lots of story here, so just follow along with me, if you will. Verse 12, the Bible says, Abner, the son of Hur, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from, now note, from Mahanaim to Gibeon, okay? Now, there's better way to be able to pronounce that word, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it, from Mahanaim to Gibeon, all right? Now, what I want to do is instead of pulling out a map and going, okay, well, here's where Mahanaim was, and they, this is how they traveled over to Gibeon, this is how they would travel over, instead of doing all that, just understand that the point of the author giving this information to us is to let us know that they were moving their whole, their whole army equipped with spears and armor and swords and everything else, and they're moving in the direction of Judah which is in the direction of King David and his men. So they're moving in that direction. And when Joab, who is the commander of David's army, finds out that they're moving in the direction, they see this as a threat. They see this as an act of war. They, and so what they do is they get all their men together and they go and they head them off and they meet them in the city of Gibeon. Gibeon, they actually meet at what was called the Pool of Gibeon, which, which was basically a man-made, hewn kind of like cavern uh, that was kind of uh, uh, um, carved out of stone. It was about 37 feet wide, 80, 82 feet wide. But, but picture, if you will, the army on one side over here, Saul's army. On the other side, you have David's army. Uh, Saul's army being led by, of course, Abner. On the other side, you have Joab. Bad guy, good guy. Got it? And so they're sitting around, and all of a sudden, Abner comes up with an idea. And he says to him, here's what we ought to do. We ought to get 12 of our very best men. You take your 12, I'll take our 12, and they'll just fight together. We'll strip them down. We won't give them swords. We won't give them armor. All we'll give them is short little daggers, and we're going to let them just fight it out amongst each other. Now, you can imagine the reason for this. The reason behind this is to be able to kind of keep the whole, the whole armies from losing tons and tons of men. So the idea was whoever would be left if one of the two had, had men left over and the others were wiped out, then, then not only were those men victorious, but that kingdom was victorious. And so they go at it. The only problem is it didn't work out the way they, they wanted to. The Bible says that they actually engaged each other, grabbed each other by the head, and they all simultaneously inserted the dagger into their sides, killing one another. And so everybody dies basically at the same time. This battle ends as quickly as it begins. And so everybody's standing around going, now what? Well, now what is we don't have a champion. Now let's all fight. They all engage. They all go after each other. They begin to fight. And what we find is that, is that Abner and his men begin to get whooped. 
And so they begin to lose. And so they begin to run from Joab and the armies of David. And as they're running, they begin to chase them more and more and more. And so Abner, I know there's a lot of different names. I'm trying to make it simple. But Joab and his two brothers, they begin to pursue Abner. In fact, one of them is very fast. Uh, one of the brothers named Asahel, his, his name was, is, means literally as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. Now let me just say this. If you are any kind of college athlete and you run, this is your senior quote. All right, this is what you, you need to write down there, Mike, as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. All right, that's what you need to put in there, please. Don't miss the opportunity. And so this, is, this young man keeps chasing him. Here's what we find out that happens. Every time that Abner gets a little bit further, he looks back, and this young man is chasing him. And he gets closer and closer, and he begins to talk to him. Go away. Just take the spoils of the men who have already died. You can't get anything from me. They go a little bit further. This young man gets even closer to him, and he tells him once again, hey, just leave me alone. I, I don't want to have to kill you. Don't do it. He keeps pursuing, keeps pursuing. He gets right on him. And then at this particular point, Abner can do nothing else. And the Bible tells us that in verse 23, that he takes and he struck, he struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. Gross, okay? Now, one of two things are happening here. Either it sounds exactly the way that it is, that he hit him with so much force with the butt of his spear that it actually did go through him killing him, or as other interpretations, other Bibles say, that he actually basically thrust his, sword, his, his spear backwards as he was coming up behind him, and he impaled him and put him to death. Either way, he dies. So he's put to death, and then he begins to run. And he runs even more and runs as fast as he possibly can. Well, now the two other brothers are more angry at him. And so they surround him. And, and Abner finds himself and his men up on a mountain. He's surrounded by the enemy, by Joab and all of his enemy. And he sits there and now he thinks, oh no, we're going to die. It's about time that we begin to speak peace. And so then in verse 26, he says, Then Abner called out to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of your brothers? Here's what he's doing. He's, he's trying to convince them, say, Hey, why can't we just all get along? We're brothers. You're my brother. My, we're your brothers. We're people of the same place. We serve the same God. Leave us alone and quit trying to kill us. You're, gonna, you're really going to turn back on this day, and you are going to be heartbroken because of this civil war. So just turn back. Well, Joab falls for this, and he ends up leaving, and the Bible says, and Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. So at this point, they both go back to their hometowns. We see that Abner leaves, having lost 360 men. Joab goes home, having lost only 19 men. Here's the point. When you read this, it's easy to begin to feel kind of bad for Abner. You're sitting there, go, poor guy. He doesn't even want to fight. He doesn't want to fight this, this, this fleet-footed guy that keeps coming after him like a wild gazelle. He doesn't want to fight him. He keeps coming, leave me alone, leave me alone. But he keeps chasing him. He had to fight and even though he didn't want to. And then he gets stuck up in a mountain completely helpless. And he has to basically beg for his life. Don't kill me, don't kill me. And then finally when he's let go, he has to go home. And he's defeated, ha ha having 360 of his men being killed. And only 19 of the Israelites, or uh, of the, those of Judah, that he had fought, you feel bad for the guy until you remember one phrase, that he went out 
from Mahanam to Gibeon. The point of the text is to let us know he started this whole thing. He's the one that initiated all this thing. His whole idea was to put to death both David, his throne, his family, his army, and his people. He wanted to not only be in control of Israel, but also of Judah. So we need not to fall, feel bad for this man. He made a mistake by going against what was clearly the word of God. So that's a big mistake. You know what his greater mistake was? He knew the word of God. He knew very well that what he was about to do went contrary to the teaching of God's word. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9 just for a moment. Here's a key to these two different chapters. He says there, he says, Abner admits that the Lord has, has sworn to David to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. This entire time he knew God's prophecy. He knew God's word. He knew God's truth. He knew that God's will was for David to be a king over everything. And yet, during this whole time, he fought it tooth and nail. He, he, he disobeyed God. He tried to kill God's man. And so, what we read, in, in one author says it like this, it teaches us that it is possible to know the truth, but not embrace the truth. To quote the truth, but not submit to the truth. To hold to the truth and yet assault the truth. Or as I said on this very point, that it's, it's, we're, we're able to know the truth without adhering to it. Without obeying, to, to God, obeying the very thing in which God has called us to do. And, and the Bible tells us what we're like when we do this. See, there's one thing for us to sin in ignorance. It's still sin. But at least we have some excuse that we didn't know any better. But when God's people know clearly what the Word of God says, and yet we willfully fight against it and willfully obey, that's something completely different. The Bible warns us, and it tells us this, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when we do such a thing, we, we have the appearance of godliness, yet we deny its power. We appear to be God's people. We appear to know God's word, but we deny the power of God because we're not living according to the will of God. In the book of James, we are said that whenever we know the word of God and we don't live it out, we're like a man who looks in the mirror intently. We look at it and we see everything that's there that needs to be fixed, but we walk away forgetting whatever it was that we saw. Then he goes on and he even, James describes it this way. He says, for us, to, to, to know the word, but to, yet not act on it in faith, that is, to do what God is calling us to do, is like a man who, who sees somebody in need. And, and instead of actually helping them, he just gives them very, very nice words. He tells them, hey, be warm and be filled and go your way. But he doesn't do anything to be able to help the man to, to be warm and to be fed. He just simply goes away. And then James asks this question, what good does that do? Answer, it does no good. It does no good. That's why he goes on to say, faith without works is what, church? Is dead. So what the Bible tells us is that when we know the truth, but yet don't submit and adhere to the word of God, we are at best powerless. We might be very well forgetful, but at very worst, we may not be in the faith of Jesus Christ. At worst, we're not born again. So what truth does all of this mean? What, uh, what, 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 uh, let, me, let me back up for a minute. Many times I've said from this pulpit, I've I've said before that there are times that, um, well, let me back up one more, one more step. 
sometimes we approach the word like we do home gym equipment. All right, let me just drive this home. Anybody buy home gym equipment ever? All right. Some of you are laughing and giggling. Some of you are like, yeah, I've got lots of gym equipment. All right. For the rest of us human beings, this is what we have. We saw something. We saw somebody in incredible uh, shape while we were eating bonbons and Coke. And we were watching and go, man, that's what I need. I just need that right there. That's going to help me. I- I've got to get in shape. And so we ordered it. They brought it all in. We had to get people to help us. And they put it in somewhere in, in the house. And-, and we sat there and go, yeah, that's fun. We worked at it one time. We were so sore we couldn't walk for the next three days. And then finally, we're just sitting there, and, and there it is. And people will come over, and people sit there and go, man, that's a nice piece of gym equipment. And we sit there and go, yeah, man, that, that's the best. That, that will help you get in shape, man. That will put you in shape right there. Well, you must work out. Well, well, I do. Probably not as often as, as, uh, as I ought to, which means I, I never get on that thing. The only time I ever use it is to hang up my clothes to dry them out when they come out of the dryer. That's what I kind of use them for. So the truth of the matter is, it never helps, it never works, it never gets you in shape. Why? Because you never put it to use. The Bible's saying, what good is it if you and I know the Word of God, are students of the Word of God, but we never submit to it? We never adhere to it. We don't obey it. There are many times that I've said from this pulpit, very pulpit, that we are not primarily pragmatic people. We are primarily theological people. Let me explain what that simply means just simply means that we are not running around all the time saying, what works? What works? How do we get people in? How do we build the church? How do we, how, how do we, how do we get people to walk an aisle? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we fix a marriage? How do we get kids? It, it, that's not what drives us. Are those things important? Can very, very well have their place and be important. But that's not what drives us. The question for us is not what works. The question for us is what is right. And the only way we know what is right is to know who God is. So I say that we're theological because when we come together, we're trying to learn about who God is. That's why we're here today, to learn who He is, what He's about, what it is that He requires, what He's done for us through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. When we know Him, then we'll know what to do. But, but please understand, we're, we're not gathering together just to be able to fill our minds with a bunch of truth, to be able to show up and to show out at Bible Trivia. To be able to let people know, oh, we're the Bible-believing church. Yeah, but we're only a Bible-believing church if we take what it is that we know and apply and adhere to it. Let me ask you, just before we take of the Lord's Supper, what is it that you know to be true, but you're just not obeying it? See, I, I don't mean, what are you struggling with? Because all of us would sit there and go, well, there's areas in my life that I struggle with sin. I struggle maybe with, with lust in my heart, or I struggle with, with materialism, or I struggle with this. But here's what I do know for God's people. We are fighting against that. Would you agree? Fighting against that. And some people come in, and they'll, they, maybe they'll share, say, Pastor Mike, I'm really struggling with this area of sin. And I'm, I'm, I say, good, I'm glad you're struggling. Because if you're not struggling, you're in big trouble. But if you're struggling against that sin, it means that you don't want to be in that sin. You don't want to have anything to do with it. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when God's people become complacent, they know something in their life is sin, and they just live with it. They're not repenting from it. They're not turning from it. They're just sitting there, and it says, hey, I'll just come, and I'll just learn more stuff. But the whole time, that area of their life is still there And the person is not submitting it and everything of their life to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a huge problem for God's people. 
to know the truth of God's Word, but not to adhere to it. There's a second problem that we see, and that is to adhere to the truth only when convenient. To adhere to the truth only when convenient. Now, notice, if you will, in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says that David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, what we see is how David becomes stronger. He has more children. So, noticing how many children are around here, we have some very strong men. Would you agree? And uh, very strong families. But basically, the idea is that the more their family would grow, the stronger their kingdom would be, the smaller their, 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 their families would be, the the, the more their kingdom was really declining and falling apart. And that's exactly what we see here. Really, the point of the author is just to let us know that what God says comes true, right? And so he had said that I'm going to take the throne away from Saul, and I'm going to give it to David. And we see it right here where David has all of these, all of these people that could take the throne after him, and now Saul is down to his one and only Ishbosheth. That's it. He's down to his, his last son, and so when they come together, one's getting stronger, one's getting weaker. But in the middle of this, don't miss Abner. Abner is still trying to seek and trying to make himself strong, the scriptures say. And what he, in the essence, do, he, he does it by trying to take one of his father's concubines. Now you sit back and go, well, what's the significance of that? Well, in ancient times, if one was to take the concubines on of a fallen or a dead king, he was in essence saying, hey, guess what? Guess who's king now? And he would be stepping up to the plate because he would be taking the king's harem. And so at this point, when he makes this step, Ishbosheth, who is the king of Israel, realizes this isn't a good thing. So he confronts him about it. He says, why have you gone to my father's concubine? And, 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 and then Abner, if we read through this, he acts like he's, he's appalled by this, this king questioning his motivation. Have you ever known somebody like that? Where, where you say, hey, is it possible that you did this or somebody make an accusation? If somebody finds himself, if you ever make an accusation towards someone or they make it towards you and you are appalled, that somebody would ever think something or say something like that to you, if you are appalled and, and you sit back and go, oh, well, I've never, the truth is you probably have ever done what it is that they said. There's probably some truth in what they've said. And this is what Abner does. This is how he responds. Look at verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a, dog, a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, our father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. Do you hear him? I've done everything. I've been faithful. And he says, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so. Here's the key. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. To Dan and Beersheba and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Did anybody notice what Abner just did? It's easy to look at him and go, this is great. He's just had a change of heart. At first, he was against David. Now he's for David. He's even quoting Scripture. But when you look very closely, you see there's not been a change of heart at all. It's that same old selfish heart. It's still that same old selfishly motivated heart that wants what, he want, what it want, wants. What it wants. Here he, he thinks the Word of God serves him, so he uses it. It's advantageous for him to be on the side of God all of a sudden. See, if he stays with the ship with Ishbosheth, that ship's going down. 
If he leaves and he goes to David and he begins to quote a bunch of scripture, David may bring him in and sit there and say, hey, I'm going to give you a place of power within my kingdom. Do you see what he's doing? All of a sudden, before, he didn't think that the word of God was advantageous to him, so he fought against it. The moment he thought it was advantageous to him, guess what he thinks he's going to do? He's going to adhere to it. And so what we find is Abner only adhered to the word of God when it was convenient for him. His quoting God's promises, he quoted God's promises not from conviction, not from a desire to advance the kingdom of God, but to advance his own kingdom. Now, we live in an age of what I like to call the don't judge me age. Any idea how I possibly could have come up with that? Everybody's favorite word is, hey, don't judge me. Outside of the church, don't judge me. Inside the church, don't judge me, right? And so basically, we live in a time, I think you agree, that you can't say anything to anybody that would be derogatory in any way or, or, or be negative or negative focus without somebody coming back with, uh, don't judge me. And so good are we with that that we actually have found that lost people seem to have gone exactly and found out that that's actually in the Bible. The Bible says, do not judge lest you be judged, right? And so we live within this tension. So let me, let me just kind of explain this just for a moment. When the Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged, let's be clear. It doesn't say that there's never a time for you and I to judge one another's actions. It's not saying that. In other words, if, if you go out and, and kill five people, and I pray that you never will, but if you do, and we call you a murderer, you have no place to get back and say, hey man, don't judge lest you be judged. You are a murderer because you murdered people. Just Okay, I'm not trying to be, oh, it's, not, it's not a trick thing here. This is just, you, 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 that's, that's what we are. If we steal something, then we are a what? Yeah, not a stealer. We're a thief. That's right. You're a stealer. You're a, you're a thief, right? And so we are that because that is what we do. But when the Bible says that we are not to judge, it's not talking so much about the outward, that there should be no outward exterior judgment of action. It is saying that we can never judge the intent of the heart to determine why somebody does what it is that they do, especially in the area of good things. If, 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 we, if we invite you over for dinner to our house and say, hey, we just want you to come over, and you leave and you go, man, the only reason that he wanted to do that was because he, he, he wanted our money. That's why he invited us over. Well, that would be wrong because, A, I don't want your money, and number two, it's wrong. Why? Because you're judging the intent of our heart, and you and I know we, don't, we can't tell the intent of another one's heart. Now, the Bible tells us not to judge each other in that way. You see somebody come to church, don't judge them of why they're coming. They're giving. Don't judge them for why they're coming. Can't determine it. You can't get that judgment right. You don't know their heart and why they're doing it. However, the Bible does tell us to judge the intent of our own hearts. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, it says, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, that you and I are to take long, honest looks at why we do what we do. One of the best ways I think that we do that is to ask a question. And then by asking that question, we ask more questions. Let me explain. We should ask the question, do we adhere? Do we obey? Do we submit to the truth of God only when convenient or even when it's inconvenient. Let me show you how it plays out with asking two more questions. 
when we come and we pray and we sing and we give and we obey, are we simply doing it to try to get something from God? Now, before we pass that away too much, listen to the subtleties of your heart and inclinations of your heart. Something bad happens. All of a sudden, we want to rush to the church or we want to be able to come to the church and we say, God, we need your help. Now, on one side, that's completely normal. I want, I want you to hear, you are to bring all things to God in prayer. We are to bring. Every one of us needs something from God. If you need something from God, raise your hand. All right. All right. Some of you are set. Very good. I'm, I'm glad. I'll take yours, okay? And so the idea, the old idea simply is it's not wrong to need something from God. The Bible says we are to be totally dependent upon Him. So, of course, we have a need of God. But there's a difference for sitting there and go, God, I certainly have needs that I need you to be able to do, than for you and I to sit there and say, I'm going to obey, I'm going to follow, I'm going to give, I'm going to serve, so that you will give me what it is that my heart desires. Do you understand that God gives to you because he loves you? And he cannot love you any more than he loves you now? No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try? And do you know that when you and I mess up and make all of these mistakes and sin, that he doesn't even love you any less? He can't love you any less because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated how much he loves you because of the work of his son, not your work and my work. But the idea is we have to understand, why am I here this morning? Am I here because I'm trying to gain the, the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercies of God because I need something? Or am I coming just for God? On the other hand, there's another way that we can basically adhere to God only when it's convenient, and that is this way. Ask this question, will you obey him even if your obedience brings more difficulty? See, sometimes we sit back and we'll say, hey, listen, I need to obey this. Hey, we, we just need to all get to church. We just need to be good because we've got some needs. We've got some bills to pay. And if we're all good enough and everybody is dressed nicely enough and we get there early enough, then that means half of our church will never get anything for God. But if we get there early, if we get there early enough, then what's going to happen is God's going to bless us. It's another thing for you and I. It's, it's exactly what Abner was doing. But it's another thing for you and I to sit back and go, okay, if I'm obedient to God, life is not going to get better. In fact, because of the obedience that I'm going to give to God, the decision that I have to make right now, things are actually going to be tougher. Things are actually going to be more difficult. In fact, if I obey God, I'm not going to escape suffering. I'm going to incur greater suffering because of the obedience of Him. And that's not a gospel we often hear, but this is the gospel that the Bible teaches. Do we only adhere to the Word of God and to the truth that we know when it's convenient. So before we take of the Lord's Supper, just two mistakes. Are you making them? Two mistakes. Are we, are we, do we know but not adhering? Right now, just, I'm asking Nick. I'm going to ask Nick to come. I'm going to ask just this question. Just take this moment, if you will. Is there something that you know that God is already true, that you, you hear the Holy Spirit, it's clear in the Word, it seems to be coming about all the different ways towards you. I'm not talking about those esoteric, mystical, well, God told me to bake an apple pie to give it to my neighbor, and I haven't done that yet. I don't know what to do with that. I'm just being honest. I don't know what to do with that. Buy a pie. I don't know, I don't know what that means. I'm talking about clearly what the Word of God has laid out for you and for me. And you know that it's true. 
might be in the area of finance, in the area of purity, in the areas of relationship. The question is, you cannot afford to know the truth but not obey it. And for some of you, again, we come back and, and maybe you're making a decision right now. Maybe right now you're trying to make a decision. Some of you are trying to make a decision. Should I be with this person? Should I not be with this person? Maybe they're unequally yoked. Should I just do it anyway? Or I'm with this person that's unequally yoked in a dating relationship. But, but, if, I, but if I'm obedient to God because it says be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, if, if I don't do that, then, then it's going to be painful for me. You cannot afford to adhere and obey the Word of God only when you deem it convenient. We cannot afford these things. And what let me tell you, as always, is that the reason that we can overcome this sin is not because you and I feel guilty. It's not because we, we are pulling ourselves up with the bootstraps, but because we have been set free by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That if you are in Christ, that he has created you anew, and he has shown you that there is something far greater than the stuff of this world, than temporal desires, than temporal things. There is something far greater, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this morning. And God, as we just come together to pray right before the Lord's Supper, I pray that we will respond. And the way we respond, Lord, is, of course, we could walk an aisle. We could pray a prayer. We could do any of those things. But the truth is the decisions that have to be made have to be made within the heart and the minds of each person. That, God, we will not make these mistakes today. That today will be a time that we turn from them and we'll do what it is that you ask or we will quit what it is that you ask. We love you by the grace of God and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? And altar is going to be open. Would you, would you come if you need prayer? Come and pray at the altar or just pray where you are. Wherever you need to do, do business with him before we take the Lord's Supper this morning.